0: Attention, everybody! Attention. Attention! Hello, suckers! Be advised that I'm, that I fucking up. The way we look back at hair metal, like we grew up with it. You were, I think, you were very directly, totally unironically into a lot of it.
1: Oh yeah, I and I and I still am. I would say no,
0: and I. I mean, I am now. Yeah. unironically into it, but like as a kid, there was a comment from. Robert Smith, of course, in the (laughs) when the Cure did their like 10 imaginary years book, he had this comment that, like, when they would go to all these punk shows, him and Simon Gallup, the bassist, would put on ABBA and like, you know, fucking do disco dances and shit just because it's so stupid to have such a, you know, socially exclusionary reaction to a type of music. And, you know, hair metal was really divisive in that way.
1: I think at least, like, with disco, you had like kind of the fringe cool element of it and especially in retrospect but hair metal i mean it was it it was not cool in retrospect at all for me Motley Crue and Warrant was my first concert ever December 11th 1989 NASA Coliseum Tommy Lee mooned to the crowd at the end of his drum solo
0: he did that pretty much every night he did
1: that every, yeah he did that every night but i mean for me but you know for like a for like a 14 year old it was a big deal even though we were his butt was a big deal it was the first naked male butt i'd ever seen and uh, that was when Warrant was like sort of previewing songs from Cherry Pie Although they were most proud of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I remember that I think they wanted the album to be called that, but I guess, yeah, it didn't work out for reasons that are obvious in hindsight. I guess it was in eighth grade that I really started kind of getting into it. it that was also peak Nukes on the Block. I kind of picked a side when I was like, oh, I would rather listen to Guns N' Roses and Skid Row. I mean, the hooks were there. The immediacy was there. And it's funny that you bring up ABBA because some of the most indelible hooks of hard rock have that kind of like very in-your-face appeal um, it's just that the, the the instrumental interludes have more pyrotechnics to them. You know, they have more whammy bar and everything.
0: There's a couple of things about this. Just hearing you talk about it, that are really significant to me. So one is, music critics tend to try and draw a kind of credibility lineage to go back to the '70s and be like, oh, Detective, and you know, fucking great whites from you know, like they they like to talk about how you know hard rock is a linear evolution from Zeppelin. Like if they can get from Zeppelin. To fucking, you know, White Lion. All these bands, they share people from ages back. So all the hair metal in the 80s, it's funny that it got this knock from critics as being like really instamatic and, you know, you throw on some eyeliner and, you know, a glossy jacket and leather pants and all that shit. And it, it, but half the people in these bands, more than half, had been playing regional, territorial, hard rock bands, bar bands since the late 70s trying to be like you know akron ohio's kiss or whatever like that that territorialism is huge because that means that when you go to a national level nobody knows who you fucking are so you have a huge pool of regional talent that's been busting their butt in the bar circuit and when you make it as the unit that was doing that work like poison who just goes to la and gets famous or you're like veterans that keep kind of you know churning around
1: yeah i mean i think that's very true And, like, you know, it's interesting to see, like, sort of where people wound up. Like, I mean, I always think of L.A. Guns because they were like, you know, they they wound up being kind of my favorite band of that era. And they certainly still are. Phil Lewis,
0: who was the
1: lead singer... Of Ellie Guns is in a band called Girl with Phil Collin, who was later in Def Leppard. It, you just see all of these kind of parallels between like yeah, the bar rock scene of the early 80s, but it was it was the packaging. Even now, it doesn't look as bad as like people make it out to be. Like, sure, there were extreme cases like the guy from Nitro and his like, you know, foot-high blonde whatever. Like the LA Guns dudes, they just looked like they were in a they were you know in a biker band and they just were like more dressed up than normal or like even Faster pussycats for all of their kind of glam tendencies. You know, and they kind of got more outre as the years went on and they sort of like started dabbling in industrial rock and stuff. It's, it's funny because like another one of my favorite bands, you know, I first heard about in that era was also Mudhoney, which was not, you know, not a hair metal band at all. But at the same time, there were these like shared, you know, lineages and like just inspirations and the ways that they were marketed and the ways that they were just sort of like perceived by the public were very, very different because of the packaging. I there, mean, there's
0: that scene in hype yeah. when I'm not sure who it is. Was it one of the guys in Mud Honey? He pulls up this old school, like, you know, Matt classic interrelated index card tab mm-hmm. of everybody who's been in every band in Seattle and how they're all interrelated. Mm-hmm. And that was like this labor of love for him to show, you know, the history and also the close-knit nature of grunge going back to Malfunction and and all these other bands. But when you look back, that whole territorial thing and the fact that those people worked in such isolation and there was no internet, nobody knew who any of these bands were. So when we go back now, you know, with the internet, there's so much fucking information. Kids now know so much more about hair metal than anyone did. Like the biggest, you know, hair metal stand in your town had no fucking clue about the interrelated players in any of these bands.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I was definitely like somebody who I tried to, you know, like I would go to Pathmark, which had a Barnes and Noble book section when I was a teen, or I would go to Record World and I would like, you know, read like Metal Edge and Circus and Hit Parader and Rip. And, you know, I would try and like figure out like, why is John Kuladner credited as John Kuladner on all these records? Like I, that was a joke that I didn't get until like, like you said, like, you know, I got the internet and I like figured it out and I was like, Oh, that's okay. That's who that dude was. Okay. I do think that, yeah, there was, you know, it was a definitely a very different kind of conception. Cause like the way that I would find out about so many bands was just like, I would set my, you know, the VHS in my house to record headbangers ball. And then I would just watch it. And, uh, you know, usually on tape, like, because I would usually fall asleep by the time it was like half an hour in. And then I would just kind of like pick and choose the bands from like the last half hour. Yeah, no,
0: and this is the exact same story that I have with 120 minutes. It's exactly the same. The Headbangers Ball was the same function, but metal sold so many more records that, Like to your point, all the stuff that was sort of new or bubbling was stuck at the back. Yeah. You know, for whatever reason, they felt they couldn't play even really huge, you know, platinum selling records in some cases weren't getting played at all on daytime MTV because they were too hard.
1: Yeah. And like
0: Anthrax never got played.
1: Yeah. I don't think they ever did. You know what? You know what video of theirs did actually make it through because I remember was their cover of Got the Time.
0: But that's what you had to do And it was the, You know There's the whole sellout problem Like Anthrax bit And did covers Just to get over When You know Their best shit You know I'm a total Fucking lifer yeah. For the, the, the song Time yeah, on yeah. Persistence of time
1: A lot of like videotapes of MTV, where I would just like um, watch it with like the pause button, you know, and the record, the record and pause buttons sort of ready, and then I would just tape like videos that I liked, and uh, you you see like a lot of the same videos kind of repeating over and over, like. Uh, the Skid Row videos from the self-titled and from Slave to the Grind and then you know and then like bits of like totally poly
0: <laughs> I had dude I had a tape that was like I would not accept SLP I never recorded in six hour because it ruined the audio I have a bunch of like two hour tapes that are me doing that on um, postmodern MTV the Kevin Seal one that was like for a half an hour on Thursdays when yeah, you were still totally, awake and totally. it wasn't like midnight I would ride the pause button and then if it was a song I already had the video on on the tape you know I'd pause it <laughs> And and see for the next one So there's all these jumps Where like You get the the first snare hit Of Peter Murphy's Cuts you up Like It's just the (laughs) snare hit Like six times All right So where I grew up Right the metal kids were so stereotypical Denim, black t-shirt, smoking butts You know, just so corned out You know, Indiana hayseed look You know, that was too, like, gruff and, and brutish And sort of dumb We had the we had the skater thing You know, pre-Nirvana We had the, the gothy, skater-y thing And then we had the pure drama club You know, goth thing So we had a little bit more striation where I was And I just wondered Were the only options for you, like, in Long Island Or were they only, like, metal or new kids?
1: They seemed that way and when I was in middle school, although it opened things opened up a bit um I didn't really know about like w d r e slash l i r which was this long Island radio station that really flew the flag for like modern rock. I didn't really know about that radio station until i guess. I would guess like 1991 or 92. Um
0: So to be fair there to be fair there the important thing to to note is that I grew up in the suburbs of Boston and there were like seven radio stations, yeah. two of which you could pick up in the suburbs right. that were playing Pixies. So, you know, that's a question of being spoiled for options as much as anything else.
1: Well, and the first college radio station that I ever actually listened to was um the CW Post radio station, which played metal on the weekends. So that was where I first heard like Megadeth. The first Megadeth song I ever heard was Liar, actually, from So Far, So Good, So What. So I guess, like, what was happening was that I was doing a lot of my recreational radio listening with my friends on the weekends. And so, like, on the weekends, like, the Adelphi NASA Community College station would have, like, sports, and the Hofstra station would have, every place would have, like, sports or specialty stuff. But this one radio station was just, like, 48 hours of metal. And that was it. And it was, you know, and it went pretty, I mean, it went pretty wide. It was like, it ranged from like, like I said, like MOD and, and, and stuff like that to like more poppy stuff. Um, although it, I think that because most of the DJs were like dudes. So like, they were like, yeah, we're not going to play like, you know, pretty boy Floyd or whatever, even though pretty boy Floyd stuff still just is like this amazing, like, example of like completely everything is maximized everything is at ultimate effect it's like that scene in um the Def Leppard movie have you seen the Def Leppard movie the VH1 Def Leppard movie
0: this week or
1: no it's it it came out like 15 years ago
0: I watch it weekly
1: oh you watch it The whole ethos of that Pretty Boy Floyd record, even their cover of Motley Crue's "Toast of the Town" is just this maximized, everything set to like fifteen version of the song. Even though, like, the charm of that initial version was that, like, this was very early proto Motley Crue where they were just like kind of picking up and releasing a record on their own, and it was very kind of like seated their pants and not very click tracky or anything. It was just kind of this, you know, race to the finish. Um, But the version on Leather Boys with Electric Toys, the Pretty Boy Floyd first album, is just this amazing, like, everything, like, choirs of thousands singing those Hayes, and it's awesome.
0: That's funny, because then even within metal, you have the whole technical piece, and so then you have, like, the Dream Theater Rush people, so you didn't often have bands like Enough's Enough and a lot of those glam bands coming out of the Hanoi Rocks thing they're holding on to the dolls and they're holding on to you know Gary Glitter and whatever else and they're you know they're trying to make music that's completely like you said cranked up to 15 sonically texturally all that stuff so there's a divide to me between you know hair metal which i would use as a synonym for for glam rock and then cock rock that divide to me is something when we look back that's, that needs to get really firewalled because people aren't getting that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, th- I definitely think that like, I mean, cause I like on the plane this morning, I actually listened to like hair nation a little bit, which is the Sirius XM station. And, you know, that's kind of like the collapsing of everything into like n- into like easily packaged nostalgia so that it can be a channel on Sirius XM. You know, they definitely don't have that dividing line. I think it's more of a spectrum though, because I feel like you have like, on the one hand you have like, you know, the super glam people. And then like, you have like enough's enough who, you know, basically just wanted to be like cheap trick mock 2. I think that also you have to, you have to include the kind of adult contempo bands, like the, the moves by the likes, like uh, John Waite and uh, the guys from journey who formed bad English, but like that was, but that was all lumped in because of the way that they were dressed. And a lot of this, a lot of this like hair metal ideal is because of the way that these bands were dressed, even though you had like the London choir boys who were who I saw on Headbanger's Ball, who like they wanted to be like the faces, you know? And even like Ellie Gunn, like that first record is very Frodo, Cali, punk, garage—you know—rock. Like it's very, it's very taut um, rock in like the late '80s. This was because it was a weird time. Rock, rock was in this weird thing where like all of the classic rock dudes were still kind of holding on. Don Henley and Rod Stewart and Mick Jagger putting out a solo record, and like Glenn Frey, and like they were all still like making a lot of. Music and in the mainstream before this was the sort of like guitar-based music that could speak to younger people.
0: I feel like that is important because it's too easy to look back and say, "Well, hair metal was everything. Hair metal was the '80s." But the reality of the '80s was it was Phil Collins, it was Genesis. Building the Perfect Beast was fucking ridiculous. All she wants to do is dance and dirty laundry, like and they were i mean they were shooting like cinematic videos with budgets that were just absurd and and yeah MTV was was so focused on having these big names because, you know, when you start MTV in 1980 and you're nobody, you're like, God, can you imagine if we had the Eagles?
1: And radio totally follows suit, too, too. I mean, if you look at like those, like if you look at the cash box charts from back then, there are so many, you know, mostly, I mean, to be fair, a lot of them are like, you know, in the lower reaches or maybe like the, you know, the bottom 60 instead of the top 40. But there are so many like one-off songs by... You know these people that were holding on and so like i thought it was very savvy of like ted nugent and jack blades to like be like well you know what instead of like just putting out like a sad somber end of the innocence kind of thing like let's do t- high enough and, and coming of age and just in- indulge our like sleazy side you know what i mean i will say that where you going now is like one of the best power battles of that era though that's from their second, that's from
0: the second damn Yankees record. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that, so, so, you know, my parents are from Indiana and all my extended relatives live in Indiana in like this tiny town. And when I was, when I was 10 and then again, when I was 16, which was the perfect time for me to go to Indiana and go to like a fair with like oh my a God, cure yeah. shirt on. Yeah. That was great <laughs> shit, dude. Yeah. I'm like I'm, <laughs> they were like stopping the Ferris wheel just to fuck with me. It was great. Oh but when it was really <laughs> communicated and out there in the in the late late 80s cuz in the mid 80s it's still very druggy and it's still there's still a huge wall between them and the audience. But when it becomes good old boy you know, Georgia satellites, damn Yankees. They're more like thirty-eight special. You know what I mean? There's no, you know, God-fearing, red-blooded American that can have a problem with damn Yankees, right? When you get to the the fairground, you know, midwestern, perfect late '80s, Mister Big, damn Yankees. That period, slaughter. You know, when it's like it's like Led Zeppelin with every single production. You know, technique we've gotten nailed. That to me was the scariest point. That's where I was like, this is actually never going to end.
1: It's so funny now to think about that Slaughter record. That record is like a breakup album, but it's a breakup album about Vinnie Vincent. This fucking guy was such a douchebag that we have to, like, make a song about how he would put all of his, like, expensive meals and, and run them up against our advance. It was I, – I, I still can't believe that, like, it that it hit as big as it did. I mean, obviously, like, Up All Night is, like, you know, a great, like, a great anthem for just, like, partying 24-7. And, like, Fly to the Angels is very effective in the way that it was written but man like some of those songs about Vinnie Vincent it's just it's so funny to think of now because that's the sort of stuff that if it came out like in 2015 people would be like oh shit they're throwing shade but it was just like a thing you know It was, and it was talked about it was talked about for maybe like two paragraphs of the story and then it was like well so tell us about your hair Bloss Elias you know he did have really good hair. Yeah, it's really but, um, cool
0: how you have t- two kick drums hanging behind your kit and they say stick it to you on them that's crazy. Yeah.
1: and the phone number <laughs>
0: The song "Smooth Up In Ya" is the most offensive cock rock song ever. It's about literally about pressuring a woman to have sex with them, and if they don't, then they like aren't. You know what I mean? Like, it's fucked up how crass that song is, but it's probably the best produced song from a like a start from a debut record of that period. And you know that's because I'm a drummer. That's what the drums are. What's fucking awesome about that? But the guitar is also really good too.
1: Yeah, it has that like really sort of like y like roundness to it like it sounds like a it sounds like a hubcap pretty much
0: yeah and I, I just it was so slick and like it had like a you know a shimmy to it it wasn't f- straight on top for for like georgia satellites or any of that kind of shit it had like a kind of a, a slinky la you know sluttiness to it and and the guy was like totally outrageously effeminate and it was totally tongue-in-cheek
1: he was he clearly wanted to be like roth mock too you know what i mean like, cause David Lee Roth by that time was just like writing his book and like, you know, I don't know, playing with Steve Vai a lot. And like, he was so. He was Mark, doing
0: a lot of rock and cliff climbing, right?
1: He was, he was, <laughs> he was climbing mountains. Yeah. And, um, Mark Turian just wanted to be David Lee Roth too. You could tell from like, even the poses that he made in the promo photos, he had that kind of like Roth sneer, you know, that, that David Lee Roth had when he got shot by Helmet Helmet Newton against that like uh, what's called that that chain link
0: fence in that one photo shoot I have to reread crazy from the heat I would go further than that and say it wasn't just him by that point when you're looking at the sales for why can't this be love and Hagar like Van Hagar the record industry is like we got to get that fucking guy back make another one of him because fucking 1984 just shit singles it was like a fucking diarrhea of number (laughs) one hits it was perfect (laughs) You can't turn that off. It's his, it's the original Hysteria. You can't turn off 1984. Yeah, it's really great. It's perfect. And and then Hysteria was perfect, th- you know, three and a half years later. but um, And I was very proud and excited and happy to see the consensus with a list that Chuck Eddie contributed to, and obviously yourself as well with Rolling Stone, saying that, yes, Hysteria was the best hair metal, you know, stadium rock, whatever you want to call it. The simple, insanely overproduced, you know, 70s... Big open chord rock. That was the pinnacle of the whole thing.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, it had to.
0: But, but. It's almost, it is almost overripe. Like, as much as I love it, it's sort of like I, I always do this and you've heard me do it. I compare that album one to one with My Bloody Valentine's Loveless. They're the same thing. If you like anything about the sound of either of them, they are perfect albums, but they're also they're also sonically physically painful to listen to in certain circumstances or or on a, at a certain level of repetition. Those records beat the shit out of your ears. Yeah.
1: I always felt like very sort of like claustrophobic listening to that album. In a oh, way rocket? that I didn't. Yeah, rocket
0: for sure. Oh my god, that, it's that's it's like what the fuck? It's just it's it's like Armageddon. <laughs> it's it's like a jo- Joel Schumacher song.
1: <laughs> you will not miss a thing, even if you're just listening on your Chrome cassette,
0: your cro 2 cassette. We're getting it all through. <laughs> Can you imagine the frequency mapping that Mutt Lange was doing when they did that record? No, no. like the fucking the the, spe- the specificity of the EQ on the hi hat. I mean, how is he? How can he even hear after having slaved over that desk for?
1: Have you heard the re-recorded versions of those songs?
0: Oh, the ones to get them on streaming. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't even want. They're yeah, fucking awful. It, it- <laughs>
1: I mean, it's so funny because like, you know, those, those, like the hard rock bands were sort of like the pioneers of re-recording their catalogs in order to like make money off them in, in physical and digital realms. Um Cockton Reloaded was one. And that was, you know, during the LA guns reunion of like the mid two thousands. And then like Def Leppard re-recorded theirs. And then they also released a live album. And it's just really interesting to hear like the production aspects that are that are missing, even like with something as simple as like um Warren's different version of Warren's like the version of "Sometimes She Cries," the second ballad that was released from "Dirty Rotten Filthy Rich," the version that gets gets played on Hair Nation doesn't have that opening guitar arpeggio. And it just makes the song sound totally flat. Yeah. It's exactly. so dry. That's yeah. the problem.
0: They go into these shit studios that cost nothing. And, I mean, it's not their fault, but w- when you try and reproduce those songs in a fucking 10 box studio in LA, oh, you know, over a weekend. Everything comes out completely flat, dead, small room, and you put fake ass reverb shapes and room shapes over the top of it in post. And it's just fucking terrible. It's such a miscarriage.
1: But I I mean, I feel for these artists because like they got fucked, you know, by their... So
0: speaking of artists who got fucked and are totally reputable, let's go to another cornerstone. Like this is where critics and glam and fans meet is Hanoi Rocks. Yeah. All their records were impossible to find. Even after Axl Rose is like going around, you can't even pick their name up for how often he's dropping. Yeah,
1: and then he was on uh, Dead Jailer or Rock and Roll, the Michael Monroe solo song. Yeah, they were very elusive. They they were a band that I always wanted to know more about, and I only I would only ever find Two Steps from the Move.
0: It was like trying to find the second Dead Boys album. There's no way.
1: It's funny to think like now, sort of the the records that get lost to history, because I feel like when well, you don't have records on streaming services, they're you know or on digital. They just seem so much more disappeared. And that's why like I've been holding on to so many of my CDs from that era, because I want to remember like the Electric Angels album. You were
0: out.
1: You know, I want to remember, like the London Choir Boys record that came out here that has, you know, like this amalgam of their hits.
0: When you talk about things getting lost, there is the same you know, you think there's not because you didn't grow up then. I'm 10 years old in the mid 80s and I don't understand this, but when you and I look back, there's just as much lost hair metal, lost, you know you know, glam metal. We've gone on eBay. You and I remember Fashion Police that tape? Yeah, yeah. There's tons and tons of these bands and these tapes, it's like New York thrash metal totally fucking unappreciated huge community all on tapes only on tapes
1: it's so funny because like even looking at Wikipedia you know like I mean I remember I don't know if you remember King of the Hill out of St. Louis no I don't never heard of them so they they were on SBK wow Uh, they were out of St. Louis yeah yeah uh, and they were, like, uh, I think their first record, I guess, came out in, like, late 90, early 91. It was, like, it was funk metal. It was, and it this was another uh, band that, like, the lead singer clearly wanted to be David Lee Roth. He had, like, the bleach blonde hair and everything. So their first single was called I Do You, and it was, like, this song with, like, the video had a Ferris wheel, and it had, like, a brass band because it was like, you know, funky. And then they had, um, a second, then they had a second single called if I say, which was like a minor hit. And it was, I mean, it it got like some play on the radio, but it it was a ballad. And it's just funny that like, they've completely just like kind of disappeared from everyone's radar. You know, I think that like the, 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 I do you video is definitely still on YouTube because I've definitely watched it recently. But, like, they are just, you know, not one of those bands that anybody thinks of, even though they were in, like, the buzz bin. I think they were in the buzz bin.
0: They probably were, because SBK was, SBK was huge. That was... Um, uh,
1: SBK was a label with Wilson Phillips and
0: uh, Vanilla Ice. Yeah, but Slow Dive was on SBK in America.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. That's
0: what... They went around spray painting Slow Dive all over fucking New York streets when Savlaki, when Savlaki was coming out. It was on SBK. yeah
1: and they then they put out jesus jones and john cicada and they put that's the right Blair they record. got
0: all the fucking westinghouse contracts
1: well they, they had a bunch of weird releases like they put out like the cassette single for the for megadeth's uh no more mr nice guy because they put out the soundtrack to that movie shocker
0: oh god that was awesome
1: they put out tasman archer's sleeping satellite
0: sleeping satellite yeah. oh dude great yeah. one yeah The Pennsylvania rock thing—that's that's like all my favorite. You know, my favorite hair metal song is "Nobody's Fool" by oh, Cinderella. Nobody's Fool's
1: awesome, yeah, yeah. That, that that makes total sense, by the way, given your other taste, You know. Oh right, because it has so, like the keyboard like, and yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> but and it's the so, thing, like, their goth, their gothy side.
0: But it, true, there's the gothy piece. But the other thing is that the chorus. See, I have like the whole John Bonham drumming Zeppelin thing. So like, I'm always about the big chugging chorus, and that has like the ultimate like two stomp chugga chugga in the chorus without being falsetto ah, you know when you know he's probably the best singer of any like is there a better singer because if you if you talk to my sister right well the sister of mine that was really into classic hair you know metal and just rock and roll going back to ario Speedwagon, tom keeper is the ultimate there's nobody even close not just because he's got those sexy lips
1: oh he does have very sexy lips
0: oh my god those lips are sexy
1: (laughs) i mean i guess you know He's up there. He's he's definitely like top, if if not number one, he's like top three. Um, I am always partial to Jizzy Pearl from uh, Love Hate and many other bands, um, who also has a very similar like range and also that kind of like grittiness. You know that kind of throaty aspect to his voice what about uh steelheart though where, where does
0: Steelheart oh man fit in? steelheart is the metalheads' metal band they are the perfection in every respect of the hair metal ideal so
1: that dude can fucking hit notes <laughs> i guess they, they're up there as far as like very sort of you know well like, i'm not even I...
0: saying they're good like don't get me wrong like but they were the most conforming immediate band you know what I mean? I just, everything about Steelheart to me was like the most fucking industrially produced I chigong, think of Danger Danger
1: for some reason, even though I, I have a very strong affection for them because they were the first band I ever met in person um, while I was hanging out after. It's like they had those keyboards that sounded like just a tangle of spaghetti that that were just like dumped over your head. Um, on And like, I love that their first two singles were also very on brand and that they were called Naughty Naughty and Bang Bang. I ever tell you the story of me getting appetite for destruction for Easter.
0: (laughs) That's a great story. You don't even have to tell it. That's the story. (laughs) There's
1: more. okay there's there's more actually, because like it was Easter and my mom got my sister and me cassettes. So she got my sister white lion. My sister was really into white lion and she got me appetite.
0: Please don't tell please don't tell me you had the original cover. Well,
1: the cassette had that as the insert.
0: Right, the J card when you opened it up.
1: Yeah. So my mom, like was looking at the tape because she wanted to see what she had bought me. Oh, dear. And she opened it up and she saw the insert. She ripped it. Fuck. And threw it in the garbage. So oh. my version of Appetite for Destruction on uh, my, my, well, the, the cassette that I had because I later replaced it with a CD, um, was only the spine and the track listing. And it was like, and it's like Easter, the holiest day on the Catholic calendar, you know, like Easter is it. Like East, there's nothing bigger than Easter because that's when Jesus, like, you know, does his whole comeback thing. And yeah my mom was very very mad at every at everyone when i was a teen like i was like a nerd but i wasn't like i was like a weird nerd like i was i had my friends we we listened to the music we listened to and then like i did like orchestra and drama club and I had my like job at a bakery, you know, and that was sort of like my life. The other kids who were like in the gifted and talented program, they would all like I would be put in the class that wasn't with the other gifted and talented kids. I would be put in like the other class. And so I was like constantly being set apart. And that definitely, I think, set a tone for a lot of what I,
0: you know. That I've been doing, like, in my whole life. What I found growing up, even in a, in a really affluent community, was that most of the kids who were into this shit, into punk and, and, like, you know, even metal and, like, you know, dark stone or metal or whatever, they were all from, you know, broken homes, regardless of the, the, the income situation. They were almost all from divorce. Where. Yeah, not
1: me.
0: No, and not me either. My parents have been married for like 60 years. Like, no, I had the best parents. But my thing was I had a whole bunch of death when my cousin got fucking blown up in Beirut exactly 32 years ago this month. The reaction to that and the way every like it was like I was like eight nine years old and I'm like this is bullshit I start acting up in school and I get fucking in trouble at school that's bullshit and I it's like it never stopped after that the first like death that I got for some reason it fucking threw some switch that sent me on a totally fucking antisocial route where I just had to constantly fuck with everything yeah and like you said like it's I still have like some echo that's like filtered through and other you know events and things have happened that there's always this tone of like yeah and what's underneath that and you're full of shit and so am i so who the fuck are you and you've got your fucking reputation you write for this magazine fuck off i don't care good good great i don't give a shit stop fucking taking it seriously you're gonna die and that's what happened to me when i found out that death was real i stopped caring about anything That's that's a light observation for this hair metal podcast. No, I mean. (laughs)